Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I talk with Angelo Sparatos, a leading insurance defense attorney and founder of Sparatos Davis in Chicago, Illinois. Angelo has tried more than 40 cases to verdict and is an accomplished author and speaker. Angelo provides his perspective as a defense attorney on personal injury trials and shares some of his secrets for reaching the jurors of today. And let me give a shout out to our sponsors. Ford's Legal Support, your one-stop shop for any legal support need. Fishman Stewart PLLC, identifying, securing, and advancing creativity. And Elite Legal Marketing, a marketing agency delivering change your practice results. And now, on to the interview. Angelo Sparatos, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thank you, Max. Glad to be here. Angelo, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective as a defense attorney. Many of the guests that we've had so far on the Litigation War Room have had more of a plaintiff's orientation. And I will tell you candidly, while I represent clients on both sides of the aisle, uh, I represent plaintiffs more often than not, and my general orientation is is probably more plaintiffs-oriented. So I'm really excited to hear what you have to share from the plaintiff's perspective. And also, I'm looking forward to hearing from you about reaching jurors, reaching today's jurors. The jurors of today are different than they were uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You and I had a really interesting conversation the other day about how some of these changes impact your practice as a trial lawyer. So I'm excited to hear from you about that as well. Uh, thank you again, Max. I- I'm really glad uh, I had an opportunity to uh, to talk with you today. It wasn't a question, but the reason you're getting plaintiffs and criminal guys is because they could probably afford to spend time away from their practice <laughs> financially and uh and spend a uh, half an hour or so talking to you about their practice. We defense lawyers have to put our, our, you know, our nose back to the grindstone and get back to work. And so we can't always afford these luxuries of uh, deviating from our practice area too long. But, uh, but thank you. I'm glad to be here, and, and I'm glad to share with your audience at least my perspective and, and my defense perspective to some of the work that I've done over the, the course of my career. Yeah, great. Great. Well, Angela, could you start by telling listeners a bit about your practice and about your law firm? Sure. I'm one of the founding members of a law firm by the name of Sparados Davis, located in Lyle and Chicago, Illinois. We have two offices, which is right in the Chicago metropolitan area. Um, My partner, Kim Davis, and I practice primarily in liability defense, insurance defense, and we represent people who are oftentimes sued by, you know, personal injury lawyers. You know, all those billboards that we see up and down the highway, people advertising cases to to get hired for injured parties, we typically represent the people who, and companies that are sued. That's our work. We have uh, two officers. There's approximately 13 lawyers at my firm of varying degrees of experience. And in addition to the litigation work we do, we do some coverage work. We do some, some commercial litigation. And actually, we have a, a new family law practice that one of our partners um, has built that that practices. So we are exclusively a litigation firm. We don't do any transactional work. We don't do anything other than, than if, it, if it involves going into the courtroom, you know, that that's what we do. But it sounds like you're branching out from what has been your bread and butter, which is insurance defense. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We've been doing that for a number of years. And, um, 
you know, what was interesting is as, as we're becoming lawyers and we, we become lawyers, you realize that really litigation is, is a kind of, it's kind of a skill that not all lawyers have. It's also not a practice area that a lot of lawyers want to be in. I think our, our picture of what is a lawyer is always somebody that's in front of a judge or a jury in a courtroom, but that's not really true. There's a number of our colleagues, as you know, that practice in areas that never get in the inside of a court uh, room. And so that's just an area that's a uh, great interest to me and to my, to my attorneys and to my partner. And, and that's how we try to service our clients. How did you get into insurance defense in the first place? Well, we built a, an insurance defense practice. When I started 30 some years ago as a new attorney, I joined a firm that um, I was an associate attorney at a firm that had three partners. And two of the partners had a national product liability defense practice. They represented a, uh, a major company in propane explosion and blanket, electric blanket fires. And they brought over a third partner who turned out to be one of my mentors, and uh, he's now a judge. But we were trying to build a practice, and um, he just start, he started at this firm trying to build a, a regional practice because the the other partners had a national practice. And at first, you know, we would do any type of litigation that we could get referred to our firm. But then, within a couple of years, we started building relationships with um, some insurance companies in the area who had regional claim offices. And they needed they needed attorneys, especially in the outlying areas outside of Chicago. You know, it's a lot easier to find attorneys who practice law in, in the city of Chicago and right in in the center of town. But we're you know much like I guess well we I know we're a little larger than Detroit, but when you get out to the suburbs, there's a lot of population, a lot of courtrooms, a lot of courthouses where I think some of our clients don't always have resources in parts of the state. So we really cover. We cover central Illinois, we cover northern Illinois, and, and, you know, major corporations, retail corporations, insurance companies that we've represented over the years don't always have relationships with people out there. And I think because we're a, a medium to small, actually kind of a small size law firm at 13 lawyers, we, we can cover that area for them and, and have ways to do it efficiently and effectively. So I, we built that practice with my partner. I became an equity owner at a firm that I was at for 25 years and about five years ago, six years ago almost. My partner and I decided to spin off because of the, um, the dynamics of our practice was different than some of the partners that were, were doing things other than, than litigation. Good for you. And, and Angelo, I, I understand that you've had a lifelong or a career-long commitment to trial advocacy and trial advocacy education. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in that regard? Thank you for that opportunity to talk on that. I thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer even when I was you know, in high school. I thought that's, that's the path I'm going to go to. And then I had an opportunity to kind of experience what being a trial lawyer was like. And, and, and it, was not, it, was, it was everything I thought it would be. Uh, when, I, when I ended up at law school, I knew that that's really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a transactional lawyer. I didn't want to do real estate or corporations. I just wanted to try cases. And um, I was fortunate enough to meet some people there, some professors. I, I worked briefly as a clerk for the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, Northern Indiana. Uh, I did that for a few months and then came back out to my hometown, which is the suburbs of Chicago, and, and, and took a job with the firm that would allow me to practice in litigation. So, you know, that's how I got into it. And then I'll, I will tell you one story where one of my partners, I probably was a, an associate. I had a great deal of, 
you know, trial advocacy experience, even in law school and in college. I was on a couple national teams that competed. But about a year, a year into my practice as an attorney, he comes to me and he says, there's this case that's coming up for trial. Would you like to try it? You know, and everything in my mind and my heart said, of course not. Of course I don't. I'm not ready to try a case quite yet. So that's what I'm thinking in my mind. But then I respond by, absolutely. Yeah, when, when, when are we scheduled for trial? I thought to myself, well, if you said you're going to want to try cases, they're giving you an opportunity to try cases. You really need to figure out how to, how to get this done in an arena that now counts, where there's client interest at stake and, and there's an outcome and, and a decision. So that, that's really how I, I got into that. Right. Well, I look forward to hearing some of your thoughts today about trial work and about reaching today's jurors in particular. Before we started this interview, we were chatting and you told me a little bit about what sounded like a very interesting case you handled recently involving a police officer. Can you just tell listeners a little bit about that case? Uh, Sure. I was hired by an insurance company a few years back um, to defend a wrongful death action where an off-duty Chicago police officer was involved in a crash about three in the morning here in Chicago that ended up causing the death of a couple young men, a driver and a passenger whose vehicle had stalled at the bottom of a ramp. At, a, at an interstate expressway here in Chicago. Turned out that my client was intoxicated. He was an off-duty um, detective. And, you know, as a result of that accident, a number of, um, there were lawsuits filed by the estate of the two individuals who died in the crash. So we had to kind of navigate protecting the interests of not just the company that hired us, but more importantly, you know, as outside counsel, what's paramount for us is defending the interests of the person who we're hired to represent. As some of your listeners might know, there's always a tripartite relationship between insurance company. But because we're outside counsel, if we get hired to to represent an individual or a company, you know, our our duty is to to that company to make sure we're doing everything we can to protect the interests of that individual, even beyond the limits of insurance that somebody might have for an automobile or, or something like that. You were telling me how the insurance limits in this case, the policy limits factored into this case. Can you share just a bit about that? Yeah, I, what I'm going to say is that, um, you know, at first my client was um, was sued and at some point during the litigation, the uh, plaintiff's attorneys both named the city of Chicago and the Chicago Police Department as parties to the litigation. When that occurred, all the defendants had an interest in, in defending the interests of their client. But really, the city of Chicago had kind of distanced itself from my client and said, hey, he was off duty. He wasn't in the scope of his employment. He wasn't really performing any and he acts, so therefore, he, it's just an individual just like anybody else. Well, the plaintiff's theory was that there has been a code of silence here in Chicago relative to the Chicago Police Department. And that code of silence is really what fostered uh, the belief that uh, my client could drive with impunity. Now, at least that was their theory, that he could drive with impunity because in prior occurrences, in prior accidents that he had or, or traffic stops, they were alleging that he was intoxicated, although my client denied it. He, he said it was just a regular traffic stop, but nothing really came of it. So the city of Chicago maintained a position that there's really nothing here, that, that he's not a, you know, we're not a party, he's not an agent, and it is what it is. So at some point, I was obligated on behalf of my client to make sure that I def- give him a full, complete, and uh, vigorous defense. So I began down the path of trying to build a, a defense on the case that entailed things like hiring the right experts to reconstruct the accident, to talk about visibility, to talk about perception reaction type, to talk about, 
you know, toxicologists who were going to talk about the level of intoxication, not only of my client, which was admitted to, but also the level of intoxication for the two individuals that were drunk enough to not get out of their car after their car became disabled and seek help. Or, or there was testimony from a, a forensic expert that really tried to limit the damages of the plaintiff relative to a wrongful survival, because it was pretty horrible that, that these young men really burned to death in, uh, in the vehicle. But we were able to establish, I mean, that, that they died instantly, really, that there was no survival, that, you know, there was no real survival after the initial impact, which probably killed them instantly. Um, so things like that. And since we raised that defense, the city of Chicago didn't really participate in that. So as we got closer to trial, Max, we were able to, you know, we were able to enter into a high-low agreement with the plaintiffs, both of them, that limited my client's exposure to the policy of insurance in effect for him. And in exchange for that, we didn't have to put on a case or weren't going to call certain witnesses or, you know, we considered that we wouldn't have to have to call them to the stand since there was no exposure to our client. And we were able to protect my client's interests through the resolution of the case, which went to trial. And the case ended up settling with the city offering substantial money for each of the, the two estates to resolve the claim as the case proceeded. So I feel, you know, it's kind of what we defense lawyers do. We don't try to get a zero verdict. We try to mitigate the damages for our clients. We try to assess them and say, this is what you're looking at. And then work like the Dickens to try to minimize the, the exposure that a client might have in probably what is the worst point in their lives, especially if they're individuals. You know, you, it's an old saying, you don't want to be judged by the worst moment in your life. And in my case, that's exactly what was happening. My client was being judged by the worst moment in this man's life. And so we have to somehow, you know, tap down that fire as much as we can. Well, and especially as a case proceeds all the way to trial, if it was going to be a zero verdict, the parties probably would have figured that out long before trial, if it goes that far. Well, you know, Illinois does have, uh, this. although this was in federal court, we were applying Illinois tort law, and Illinois does have a contributory negligence clause, which if it's more than 50% is a complete bar. So there is a possibility, um, although I wouldn't bet my house on it, there is a possibility that a jury could find that the failure of the decedent's to see they were disabled at the bottom of a ramp going into an interstate. There was no shoulder. The shoulder, actually the shoulder was about a foot and a half wide. So even having pulled off to the shoulder, the vehicle was substantially in the lane of traffic because of the barrier to the right side. There was ample evidence of contributory negligence, including the failure, you know, you, we had phone records of the, of the two decedents where they didn't make any phone calls to 911. They didn't call a tow truck. And the reason was because they had also been intoxicated at drinking at three in the morning and were on their way home when their vehicle disabled. So, you know, we had that evidence that ultimately didn't come out at trial once we resolved our portion of the case. And we still participated in the trial we, with the jury. We put on uh, some witnesses and addressed some issues, but the city was the one that was obligated to defend it. And yeah, we were very pleased with the outcome on behalf of our client, ultimately, what was a very tragic occurrence. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Fort's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in LA? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? 
Forts Legal has you covered. I use Forts Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Forts Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Forts Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fortslegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or call 844-730-4066. Well, Angelo, um, earlier you mentioned that you're not an SEC lawyer, you're not a corporate lawyer, you're a litigator, and that was a really apt observation. We're litigators, and that in itself is an area of specialization, so to speak. Now, of course, many, if not most litigators do have substantive subject matter expertise. And in your case, of course, you have a great deal of knowledge about tort law, for example. In my case, I handle IP litigation. But on top of that, what litigators really do is litigation. Um, And there's a lot that goes goes into that. A lot of knowledge, a lot of expertise, a lot of education, a lot of trial and error about the art and the science of litigation, from mapping out a litigation strategy to moving a case forward to persuading judges, persuading um, jurors, and ultimately getting a, a great result, a great outcome for our clients. And I know that you have some really interesting observations about reaching jurors in particular. Of course, the jurors that we face today are not the same as the jurors that that attorneys faced a generation ago. Let me start by asking you, what do lawyers need to understand about today's jurors? The first thing is that your jurors probably don't have the attention span that they did 20, 30, let alone 50 or 60 years ago. You know, we live in a society of the of the 15 second or five second soundbite you know, what's that uh, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, things where, you know, that generation is starting to take in information very quickly, very, very quickly. And, you know, when I was first, when that technology first came out, they were probably teenagers, but now enough time has passed where they're old enough to sit on your jury. There's a real possibility that this Generation X, or I'm sorry, or or the Millennials, or the Generation Z, whatever letter of the alphabet we're at, there's a real possibility that they're going to be they're going to make up a substantial portion of your jury. Even people in their 30s are probably very tech savvy and they receive information a lot differently than we do and certainly a lot differently than the generation that is older than us does. And so I think as an attorney it's about communication and you have to be able to speak to them in a way that they want to receive information. If I could say something real quick um my wife and I were at a, at a medical facility here just for some routine testing. And one of the members of the staff, when we were filling out our forms for the type of testing you have to do when you get older, Max, you know, and they said, how would you like to receive your information? How would you like to be communicated to? And I'm like, wow, isn't that an amazing question for a trial lawyer? Some people would like it in written form. Some people would like it in oral form. Some people would like it in a text message, some people might like it in a video. I mean, they were really giving us an option to say, how should we communicate with you? And I never thought of that before because it's either either somebody speaks something to you or they write something down and hand it to you. And I, and I think that that's the way. I mean, in a, in a context where it's so important for people to get it right, you got to make sure that the person that's listening to you understands what you're saying. 
And, and I think that's part of the process now as a litigator. It's not knowing all the rules and the procedure and the evidence and all that other good stuff, but it's how is your communication going to be effective? Well, could you shed some light on that question? Um, what difference do these changes in the way that jurors process information, what difference does it make and, and what do you do to, to reach jurors, especially these younger Generation Z or whatever the current letter is? So let me say uh, the first thing is this. It is almost expected now that the information you're going to relate to them is on a videotape. We used to, we used to worry about not having a witness live and having to put them on a videotape. The jury prefers it that way, I would suggest. I would suggest that they, they'd rather not see a live witness with all the, the pauses and the delays and the objections. They'd much rather just look at a video of what your witness is going to say. You almost always have to use audiovisual aids. I know that was like an option, but it really is necessary. If you don't do that, if you just stand in front of a jury and tell them your case, that's not going to be effective. You have to use photos. You have to use demonstrative exhibits. You have to be able to engage them. And one of the techniques that I use is that if we have a witness that's going to be on there for a long time, on the stand for a long time, you got to make sure you have points in the examination where you break it up and you say, you know, where a strategic use of exhibits at the right time in the examination. I think those are some of the techniques that they expect you to do. And they expect to see. If they don't, they're going to say, you know, what's wrong with him? Why can't we just see a video? So that, that's one of the, the items that I think, I think you use. Right. The other item actually is in who is on the jury ultimately. Who do you select? And, you know, some, and there's a, a great deal of neuroscience that is looking at how, first of all, how jurors act. And you could, you could just, just Google that. Google it for, for all of the lawyers out there. You Google neuroscience, you Google jury selection, you're going to get all kinds of resources that talk about that. But what's important about that is that it applies across the board. How do people like to receive information? So they always say, you don't, you know, somebody will say, so this isn't my, my saying, you don't select the jury, you deselect the jury. You really are trying to find, once you develop your theory of the case, you're trying to find like-minded jurors, like-minded jurors who kind of agree with your theory of the case. You know, if you believe the damages are not legitimate and speculative and questionable, you're probably going to want to pick somebody that's a skeptic and not just a skeptic on damages, but maybe a skeptic across the board. What kind of, you know, how did they get, gain their information? Whereas on the other hand, the other side of that spectrum is somebody that is empathetic. You probably want on the one side of the spectrum, you've got a skeptic. On the other side of the spectrum, you have somebody that's empathetic. If you're questioning somebody's damages or somebody's credibility, you need a skeptic. I don't think that has to do with plaintiff defendant. I think it has to do with how we like to process and how we see the world, our worldview. And so, you know, lawyers, and we were trained as lawyers, like I represent a corporation. Um, can you be fair to a corporation? Well, a juror is going to say, yeah, I, I can be fair to a corporation. But if they really have a, a predisposition to not liking corporations, and you try to, to tell them, you're, but you're going to like my corporation. I think lawyers fool themselves because they're not. And you need to figure out whether that juror, and you have to ask questions about how do they feel? What experiences have they had with corporations? Have they had a situation with an insurance company that maybe denied their claim? Have they gone in a retail situation where they tried to return something and they couldn't get a refund? Um, you know, what activities do they participate in that? 
and you get a sense how you know where do you yeah i know this is a, a question where do you get your news and that's a very interesting question for this younger generation right because they're not getting their news where we get our news where we our generation got their news so those are that's information that helps you kind of piece together and here's something else i would say jurors i hate to say this as, as a lawyer used to focus on things like gender race faith all that's out the window i mean it's out the window. Now it's about mindset. And it, it has it has not that you're not a product of your experience and background, but it's how you view the world that is much more important than race, gender, and saying, well, I think if a person of this race would be more accepting of this argument. And that, that's not true. That's not true because there may be some experience that that person had in their world, in their life, that will affect how they like information, what they believe, what they don't believe. So that's a very important part of litigation that I believe is very, very helpful to a, a, a defense attorney who wants to who wants to have some success and would like to limit the exposure of their clients. Now, one thing that you and I discussed also was the evolving or a, a real shift in the way that the average person thinks about authority, things about the position of people in positions of that we traditionally thought were positions of power, education, prestige. How are those things changing? That becomes especially important. To, and I think what we're talking about um, is there used to be a time when, you know, when a politician, if you, if you look back in American history, politicians were probably people held with, to some degree of high esteem, the mayor, the governor, etc. You know, and I'm talking, you know, I don't know, I wasn't around, but the 40s and the, the 30s and, and some time ago. Well, you know, after Watergate, after the 60s, we started looking at politicians a little differently. Members of like academics, scientists, you know, we start talking about the rise of the American corporation and the fact that corporations have lied to us through their engineers and their scientists. Nobody's just going to take hook, line and sinker because you have seven degrees from these you know, Harvard, and Yale, and whatever, even, you know, people of, of high esteem would, they don't, you know, they don't, they don't accept it just because of your credentials or experience. They want to understand the science. How did you get to that conclusion? Members of the clergy, members of the clergy, also individuals who we used to have the highest regard, clergy, uh, irrespective of your faith, whether you're, you're um, Islam, Christian, Jewish, those are, but all of them in today's society have been held to some disrepute, have been held to some level of, of scrutiny and have not always been the best individuals. So there, there is no one any longer who we believe, doctors, that's another one. Doctors are testifying all the time. Well, I'm a doctor. Of course, but you gotta, you gotta just take what I'm telling you to be true. Uh, juries don't buy that anymore. They really need to be shown why it is that you have the opinion that you do. You have to lead them through the math, lead them through the analysis and explain what factors they took into account, what is the process that they apply. And, and then the jury, if you do that, the jury will almost conclude the same thing to some degree that your expert is concluding. And the jury will think, well, that was my idea. Well, you no, know, really it was your expert's idea, but you're helping them understand how they got to that conclusion. Those have been some of the changes that I think over the last few decades that I've been practicing, I've, I've noticed. 
you know, the doctor's conclusions are not going to be binding on that jury if they don't also have the same worldview and believe and understand why they have that outcome. Yeah, but he's a very famous man. He's a very reputable doctor. Well, the jury doesn't know that. The jury doesn't know where. Maybe the jury resents the fact that he's a Harvard-educated and trained scientist. Or maybe they went to a community college. You know, the juror, that is. On the other hand, you have people with a lot, a good deal of experience. Maybe that person is much more impactful than the academic. So those are, those are the type of factors that I think an effective trial lawyer has to be aware of when they're trying to present their case. Let's drill down a little bit. Do you have any strategies or tactics or techniques for effectively using an expert in today's environment or, or combating the other side's expert in today's environment? Well, yeah, I, I guess I, I have some thoughts on that. The first one is that, you know, when I first started practicing and they would call an expert, they always wanted to attack the expert, you know, medical expert, let's say, about how much money they charge. Well, you charge all this money. Well, if you compare what a medical expert that you've hired charges versus what a treating doctor is going to charge for the surgery that they just recommended, you know, my expert will pale in comparison to what the doctor who's seeking future medical surgery, you know, that, so that's, that's one of the approaches. The other approach is it's not clear to me, it depends on your demographics of your jury. It's not clear to me that one aspect of their background is important, more important than others. So for example, their educational experience may or may not be important. It may be outweighed by their their lifelong experiences and how long have they been practicing in their profession, irrespective of where they went to school. Their military experience may be impactful. If you've got a, you know, if you're in a community where there is a great deal of military in that community and, and your expert had military experience, even though it's not even on the point that they're testifying to, that may be impactful. The other thing is the ability of the expert to be heard and understood and to be clear. You know, those are some of the factors that I, I think are so important. And what I what I like to do is I always like to approach it with introducing the expert, telling them, having the expert explain why they were retained, what, what are they here for, what issues were they asked to address. You talk a little bit about what, what they charge for their time and how much they may have charged up until this point for their participation. And then you ask them, then you begin the process. I, I always like to begin typically with not the opinion, but what information did they start taking into account to make their conclusion or their opinion? So if they reviewed documents, if they actually conducted some testing, you kind of have them explain that and you explain to the jury what that entailed, whether they're, you know, they were downloading data whether they went out and took measurements, whether they did visibility studies, you have them go through that. And at that point, that's a great opportunity to now to start incorporating audiovisual aids and demonstrative exhibits that, you know, that you, most of the judges will let you use because it'll aid the jury in understanding the process. Then you ask them a little bit about their calculations, but this is where you have to be careful because it's at this point that if you're working, especially with engineers, they're going to want to tell you not what time it is, but how they built the clock, right? So once that happens, you really need to kind of limit your expert in that process and then ultimately have them give an opinion. 
And then, and then once they give an opinion, you as the examining attorney, the one who's proffering the testimony, you may want to test that opinion, you know, and anticipate some of your opponent's questions and say, well, what about this? And what about that? You don't have to wait till after your expert's been cross-examined to start asking questions that you know are going to come up on cross-examination. Give them a chance to explain it before your opponent does. And here's another thing. That witness probably should not be on the stand for more than an hour. You know, how many times do you have cases, Max? I'm sure you've had cases where your opponent's convinced that this witness is going to take the whole afternoon to be able to give testimony. Well, I got news for you. You're going to have a big problem with that. You really are going to have to get a very disciplined, you know, educated, mature jury to listen to a witness for all day and, and more than a couple of days. So those are some of the factors that you have to you have to put in. Any videos that you have with them, any photographs, exhibits, maybe even having the witness come off the stand and explain something and, and, and write it out with the permission of the court. Those are all some of the, the factors that I think get you to an outcome where at the end of the testimony, the jury's going to say, that makes perfect sense to me. Of course, that's what the outcome should be. Yeah. And some of those strategies, having the witness write things out, you know, cutting things into short segments, using good demonstrative, making strategic use of exhibits and so on, seem particularly important given some of these changes we're seeing with the juror pool. Because we're kind of caught between two things here. On the one hand, jurors are less deferential to authority. They want to do the math themselves so they can connect the dots to change the metaphor. But on the other hand, they have shorter attention spans <laughs> and um, are used to being entertained. And so on the one hand, they want to see how it works themselves. But on the other hand, they don't want it to take more than a few minutes. Yeah. And in addition to that, um, I think that, again, for those of us who, are, who, have, who have been doing this for a while, you also can't judge a book by its cover. Um, I'm telling you a, a story about a juror that uh, we were trying a, a, a personal injury case and the medical issue was somewhat complicated. So right there in the front of our veneer was a, an individual who was wearing a tracksuit. He had high top sneakers. He had his hat up to the side. And for a large time of the, of the, of the jury selection, he had his feet up on the on the barrier in front of the jury box in the courtroom. I, I, I don't remember why the judge didn't ask him to put his feet down, but he didn't. And so I'm like, okay, well, let me go through the process of just asking this person some questions and then sending him out the door. So I begin asking him some questions about his background. And, he, and he's probably, I figure, about 27, 28 years old. And he looked like he was a member of a, of a, of a rap group. And um, he lived in the suburbs and he proceeds to tell me how he's at the honors college at a local you know, uh, Catholic university, that he's an excellent student. And, you know, after eliciting some of the information, some of his life experiences, he turned out to be a fantastic juror. You can't take into account how people dress and say, well, they probably are not going to be good jurors because, you know, kids are not younger members of the jury are not used to wearing jackets and ties. They're going to come in there with a t-shirt. That doesn't mean that they're not intelligent, hardworking, and want to do the right thing. And, and this young man turned out to be a finder. I think we had an opportunity to interview him. And, you know, at the same time, we had another person on the, on the jury who was something known as a, a Twitch streamer, which I had to get him to explain. What's a Twitch streamer? And he explained to me that he basically earns a living by playing video games on a computer and people pay a subscription to watch him play. He also made it on that jury because he 
again, he, he ran his own business. He, he took something that he was passionate about and was able to was able to make it successful. And he was accountable for, for things like that. So, so those are some of the things that I, I think the more experienced lawyers have to kind of get used to what it is, who are the people that you're talking to? Because as you know, our constitution says a jury of your peers. It's not a jury of whoever only thinks like you. And, you know, it could be older people, younger people. It could be, uh, you know, from all parts of society. And those are some of the factors, you know, and if they process information properly and their predisposition is to be skeptical or analytical, that may not be a bad uh, defense juror. And then, and then there's also the component of how do they feel about insurance companies? If I represent insurance companies, I got to get, I got to figure that out. How do jurors feel every once in a while? We have the unfortunate task of having to defend people that were intoxicated while they were involved in a, in a, in a collision and, and, and hurt somebody pretty badly. You gotta, you gotta address that because that, you know, that's going to come into evidence. And, you know, some people might say, I'll, I'll do my best to be fair and impartial. Other people say, I can't be impartial. I had a child that was injured by a drunk driver. I was injured by a drunk driver. You, you got it, but you still have the task and it's our duty as lawyers to still represent those interests. So how can you do it? You know, I think that the best approach is not to pull the wool over everybody's eyes, but to, to own it, to acknowledge it and to say, this isn't the, uh, the best situation here. But let me tell you, the, these are the issues that I think we're going to have. We need you to decide. Can you decide these issues as fairly as you can, given you know, your experiences. And, and if you get somebody that says, yeah, I think I can do that. I think that's the best that you can hope for. But if anything else, by getting, by having that discourse with the members of the jury, at least now they're open to the idea that you're not trying to lie to them or to tell them, you know, by the way, we lawyers are not also the best at, you know, unfortunately, they don't always have a high image of, of us as lawyers in the courtroom, they being the jurors, they just don't. Because rightfully or wrongfully, that's their experience. So you have to win over their trust by your conduct, by your truthfulness, by your authenticity. Those are all part of the, of, of the process that is beyond the law and the procedure that we're so trained in as, as attorneys. You know, it has always been true that you can't judge a book by its cover. But it seems more true than ever today, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. And they'll surprise you. One of the things I was telling my son, I have a 19-year-old son. I don't know what generation he's in, but I tell him, I, I told him yesterday, I said, I really value the way that generation goes at things because I think sometimes they get a bum rap by being told, well, you're, you don't work as hard enough. You don't do this right. You know, you know, that's not really true. They just have a different way of getting to where they need to go. And, um, and you gotta, you gotta understand that, that they do want to do the right thing and they want to be accountable uh, there's, you know, in every generation, there are people that are not accountable, that don't want to do the right thing and are always making excuses. Your job as a trial lawyer is to figure that out by asking those questions and understanding the neuroscience about how people make decisions. Understanding that sometimes when you take somebody with a belief system or a belief structure and you try to change their minds, they're not going to appreciate that for you. They're going to resent you for trying to change what they believe to be true. I mean, you know, our politics today is an example of that. You know, we've got two extremes entrenched in positions that are refusing to look at the other side. You can't afford to do that as a defense lawyer or, or any kind of lawyer. You have to be able to speak to them across those differences. And, and, and if you can't, well, that's why, that's why God gave us preemptory challenges, right? You know, that, that your, your final comments there lead into my last question for you, which is, can you put a defense spin 
on all of this. These are really great insights. What does the defense attorney in particular need to know and understand and apply um, regarding jurors today? Well, um, the first thing is that in most jurisdictions, jurors are going to be skeptical of personal injury lawsuits to begin with. So we do start with a little bit of an advantage. They, they want to be convinced that the plaintiff truly sustained a significant injury worthy of the fact that they're going to spend the next week or two in a courtroom trying to adjudicate how much money somebody gets. So, so that, as a, as a defense attorney, I think I have an advantage in that. The, the other thing that we try to do is then we have to kind of humanize maybe a bad set of a, a company, a corporation. So, so as a defense attorney, we're probably going to have to say, you know, I know that I represent XYZ Corporation, but my corporation is made up of individuals, people that work at my company, people that raise families, buy homes, send their kids to college with this company. So while you, you're telling me that, you know, I, you don't trust corporations, it's not just you know, this isn't the CEO on trial. These are people and this company is made up of all the people that that are regular people that are trying to earn a living and support their family. And you try to talk to them about that. And and you can somewhat tell, you know, some of their people are going to lie to you, but you can try and tell whether they're being genuine when they answer those questions. Uh, and then at last but not least, you try to figure out whether, you know, whether there's a particular issue in the case that you think is going to be explosive, like DUI, or maybe maybe your client was using a cell phone when the collision occurred. Uh, maybe the truck, you know, you're, maybe you represent a trucking company where they figure, well, the trucking company must have all the money in the world. Those are some of the facts that you're trying to get out during the course of this process that I think lead you to, to at least have people that are going to be receptive receptive to the to the narrative that you would like to present. And then finally, if, this, if I said finally once before, you really do have to be brief. We as lawyers are trained to be detail-oriented and make sure we didn't miss anything. But as a, as a trial judge told me one time, the number one question that I get from the jurors is, why do lawyers keep repeating themselves? Why do lawyers keep <laughs> saying something over and over again. And a lot of it is our paranoia. We haven't been heard and we don't want to miss anything. But the jury's, you know, Max, you said something when we sp spoken before that you believe that jurors overwhelmingly more often than not get it right. And I agree with that. You know, we do hear about the crazy verdicts in the news, but really this is a great system. It's, it's a system that is so important in our democracy, and I do believe that this process and the effort that lawyers make to get the, the outcome that they get is the right thing overwhelmingly. And, uh, and I love the system. I'm glad to be a part of it, and I've devoted my life to it. And I do agree with that, especially on the civil side. I don't really have experience on the criminal side, and we hear stories, we see things in the news, but on the civil side, as you said, things happen, crazy things happen, uh, but more often than not, I think you and I agreed get it right. Angelo, it's really been great talking with you. I really appreciate the insights that you've shared today. Where can listeners find you if they want to look you up? Sure. Uh, so my website is www.spydavlaw.com. And um, if, you, if you Google my name, Angelo Sparados, I should come up. It's A- 
S-P-Y-R-A-T-O-S, at spy, S-P-Y-D-A-V-L-A-W.com. Max, thank you for the opportunity to present to your audience. And, um, and I think this is important. I think as lawyers, it is important to share ideas and information. And I think it does something to move the needle to making, you know, making lawyers much more uh, credible and not only credible, but also for, for society to understand how important we are in the functioning of a democracy. What's the old saying? You know, everybody hates a lawyer except for their lawyer. You got that right. So this is this is very uh, valuable what you're doing here for the for the legal profession. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks again, Angela, for joining us on the Litigation War Room. You have been listening to the Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the Litigation War Room.